Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the great charms, gifts that uh, New Orleans possesses as a city of music is the uh, ability that one has when living there to uh, take a few blocks walk, maybe a very short drive, and see some of the most amazing world-class musical talent on offer in amazingly intimate surroundings. Um, Sometimes it's so available, I was talking with a New Orleans friend about this last night, sometimes it's so available, you're almost tempted to take it for granted. But you don't. If, If you remember, as I do, the people that I never got to see uh, Professor Longhair, James Booker, among others, uh, because they had passed away before I got there. So I took every opportunity to see Henry Butler play in venues large and small. And um, so many of them were extremely memorable, including the uh, the large number of visits he paid to venues large and small last year during Jazz Fest, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival in uh, late April and early May. He was in the middle of a long, challenging series of bouts with the Big C. But he came back to town. He had uh, exiled himself to Brooklyn after Katrina. And uh, those two weeks were full of performances that were powerful, defiant, and dominant. And tonic, too. Uh, As I say, unforgettable in surroundings large and small. This week, Henry lost the last round of that bout, and so we're going to devote a large part of today's program to remembering the great Henry Butler. Here he is, first of all, live from Austin, Texas, on the show with John Boutte from 10 years ago. Don't waste your time being angry when a moment is better with a smile. If you feel your time's been wasted, wasted here for a while, standing at that bus stop, just across from crowds, waiting for the driver to take me to my heavenly house. I'll see you there at the foot of Canal Street. What will they wear at the foot of Canal Street? Will a band be playing at the foot of Canal Street? What will the people be saying at the foot of Canal Street? Does your father lie there? Does your mother pray? I'm gonna lay my burdens down at the foot of Canal Street. When the riverbanks are overflowing, the streetcar has seen its day. When all is gone, the plantation, the trimmy, the bucare, I'll be swinging to that music, Lord, on higher ground. See 
because of the uh, French influence, but there seems to be a lot of royalty in New Orleans. There are uh, kings and queens of uh, Mardi Gras, and um, and there is a a piano king. Um, and most recently, that uh, that title has been uh, lavished on my guest today here on the show, Henry Butler, who is the the heir to the crown of piano king of New Orleans. So they say. Um, do you accept the honor, Henry Butler? I'm only king of my own piano, and, <laughs> and uh, I don't know about anybody else's, I'll tell you. It's it's hard enough, <clears throat> it's really hard enough to really uh, manipulate the piano that you have in your possession, and uh, I'm trying to do that. <laughs> well, you do it uh, fantastically, as people will have heard on my show and, and will hear again here live in, in a few minutes. Um I'm just going to lavish you with some some uh, praise to get the ball, the conversational ball rolling. But uh, last year at Jazz Fest, the very first thing that uh, I saw m- with my wife when we walked onto the grounds was a, an hour of solo piano that you did in the jazz tent. And it was, it, we looked at each other at the end and just said, "We we could leave now. We've <laughs> we've, we've been so musically satisfied that we, that uh, we could go home happy." Well, that's nice of you to say that. I, I, I guess we had the only solo performance in the jazz tent last year. Um, it came about as a result of, well, they made an offer that I can only accept as a solo artist. <laughs> and it turned out to be a good offer as a soloist. Um, uh, but uh, I, I really had fun doing that. That that uh, That was good. That was my first time in many years doing solo at the jazz festival in New Orleans. Of course, we we play solo all over the country uh, at festivals and and other concert type arenas. But uh, I don't know. It's it's an inter- interesting that uh, in New Orleans we haven't done much of that uh, lately. 
Well, it's it's I, I'm I'm partial to it only because I'm I'm such a fan of your playing that uh, I love bands and I love to hear a bunch of musicians together, but um, the chance to just hear you by yourself, uh, untrammeled and and unaccompanied, is is really a treat, which is a, a something we're going to experience right now. Uh, would you play something at the at the piano for us? Certainly. Uh, one of the things that appears on the new record is a piece entitled Bourbon Street Blues. It's actually in the stride style, and we'll play that one. Great. Henry Butler. Thank you.
what you're hearing is uh, from an interview I did with Henry about nearly 20 years ago on this broadcast, um, and there'll be more of it coming up. This is, you've also heard a New Orleans pianist and composer on this program frequently, both musically and in words, uh, Tom McDermott. And this is what Tom wrote shortly after Henry passed away this week. Henry Butler created a new way to play the piano, mixing McCoy Tyner, Professor Longhair, and others to forge his own hyper-funkified, jazzified world. He was keenly erudite, spiritual body. He was once the hands-on judge at a who-has-the-funkiest-butt contest at the old funky butt. Henry had a great gap-toothed smile and a booming laugh. Tom wrote, I knew him for 30 years, slowly winning his confidence. I'd occasionally drive him around town on errands, happy to be talking to him about politics or, or alternative health, rarely about music. I never got a lesson from him. Once I dropped him off to see his mama at her old uptown house, it was a sweet reunion I won't forget. Henry got wiped out by Katrina. He moved first to Denver, then to Brooklyn, reluctant to move home for environmental reasons. When he made it back home for gigs, he was deluged by friends. I'm sure George Winston, a friend and staunch supporter of Henry's, has hours of good recordings of heavy Henry, and we'll get them out there. Until then, keep on learning and playing and laughing, my friend, wherever you may be. This is Tom's tribute to Henry Butler called Heavy Henry. How did you come to uh, do this for a living? 
Oh, you mean uh, play piano mm -hmm. for a living? Yeah. Or yeah. How did you get play yeah. music? Well, <clears throat> it started at a state school for the blind in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I was a student uh, from old first grade through my last year of high school. I was volunteered as a musician by a lady <laughs> by the name of J.S. Catley, and she was too big for me to argue with. <laughs> <laughs> you were volunteered for it. That's right, yeah. you know, in the Army sense of the mm -hmm, word. Exactly. And so, <clears throat> actually, it took, oh, took quite a while for me to really take to that, because, of course, back in those days, you were considered something other than normal uh, if you uh, took piano lessons. <laughs> do I read your meaning correctly? Uh, I think you do. Okay. I think you know, and 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 unfortunately, those days uh, did put those labels on you, mm. uh, especially uh, kids, little boys, uh, and and little boys can be quite cruel to, uh, toward each other. No kidding. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's always been something that uh, amazed me. In this country, there's this myth of childhood innocence. And, you know, you just wonder, w didn't these people pay attention when they were children? <laughs> Innocence. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, that's very funny. Yeah. But, you know, uh, <clears throat> when I really started to show some uh, potential, uh, all that sort of disappeared. I, I remember the first arrangement that I did was for two trombones and piano, and all the kids said, wow, man, that was great. I really, they wanted to start taking piano lessons. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted all the glory, but they didn't want to do the work. I know the feeling. Oh, yes. I, I took piano lessons, but I didn't want to do the work. That's why I'm sitting here and you're sitting there. Well, actually, <laughs> you've done a lot of good stuff. Man. Well, thank I wasn't fishing for that. No, oh, I'm just saying right. I had, a, I had, a, I had a, a teacher who just couldn't accept the fact that I thought an hour a day was as much as anyone needed to practice. And uh, I, she was right, and I was wrong. <laughs> Yeah, well, I tell you what, I started out doing an hour a day, and the next thing I knew, it was like five and six and mm. seven. That was that was pretty tough. How old were you when you when you did your first uh, gig as a piano player? I was, I tell you, I was fourteen when I started accepting money. Uh, when, I guess at that point, I became a professional. Um, so yeah, I was fourteen. I was mm. in the ninth grade. And um, we had we had in that group uh, four four or five horns I think, uh, and an occasional bass player, <laughs> and that's where I learned how to use my left hand. Uh, when he didn't when he didn't show up, you mean? No, that's right. Yeah. Well, many times we didn't have we didn't have one to show up, so mm. um, that was one or two people that we knew we could use from time to time, but they were always busy because they were pretty good. And uh, so I learned to use my left hand, and I just basically pounded it out at that time. And right now, uh, my left hand serves me fairly well. Exceedingly well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You you do stuff uh, among other things. You do stuff in unison with with two hands that uh, is is trickier and and more complex than most people can pull off with one. Well, I I teach my students that they should not do anything in their right hand that the left hand can't do, hmm. and I kind of follow that for myself as well. I uh, whether I'm playing as a side man or backing up someone, uh, or whether I'm 
doing it as a soloist. I think it's very important to be able to use the whole piano and not only <clears throat> to play uh, parallel octaves uh, in both hands, but mm -hmm. to be able to do things in contrary motion. That means going in different directions at the same time. Mm. Uh, play for us, if you would, uh, something else from your album or from another album? Certainly. I'd like to do this uh, next piece. Uh, it actually has become one of my signature tunes. It's a piece that I did when I was on Wyndham Hill, uh, and it's the title track of that record. It's entitled Orleans Inspiration.
And here's another New Orleans piano player of some renown to talk about Henry. Here's David Tarkanowski. I've heard Henry Butler play in New Orleans. I've heard him play in Europe. And I've heard him play with ensembles, and I've heard him play solo. I remember one night in Copenhagen, I heard him play solo, and I thought to myself, I'm hearing one of the most important pianists of the 20th century. He's amazing. He's impressionistic, he's fearless, he's technically flawless. He brings a sanctified church thing to avant-garde jazz playing. He's angular, he's obtuse, he's not afraid to disturb. It's like a friend of mine once said, I asked a friend of mine, I said, what do you look for in a musician? And he said, I want to hear what's wrong with you. And Henry Butler reveals his entire soul when he plays. He, he doesn't hold anything back. He's fearless.
from New Orleans and from London. This is Le Show looking back at the life of Henry Butler. Now more of our interview with him. What is it about New Orleans that, that uh, keeps piano music alive, uh, where piano traditions don't seem to be flourishing elsewhere in the country? I think it's the rhythm. I think it's the rhythm, and I also think that uh, there's more than just piano music that's alive here. You have a sort of a revival of the brass, the brass bands, mm -hmm. and these guys are the straight from the street, mm -hmm. and it's great. You know, it's you have the street rhythms, and they're really drawing, whether they know it or not, uh, from sort of the uh, rhythms of the. Uh, Place du Congo festivals, and uh, <clears throat> they're also drawing from the traditional jazz uh, repertoire uh, and the gospel repertoire. Basically, the same kind of things that uh, the brass bands of, uh, of the uh, back uh, around the turn of the century. The same devices, the same tools that they used. They're just they're just updated today. Mm. Uh, they're using, in many cases, popular music of the day with the same traditional jazz rhythms, with the same, uh, uh, with the traditional jazz rhythms integrated with funk sometimes. Uh, and, and, they, and, they, and they've found a way to blend them very well. They, I mean, they've done it very well. Yeah. It's just amazing that, in, in a, I've, I've said this before, but that they, uh, the guitar has taken over everywhere else except here, where it's, you know there's still room for horns and piano and all sorts of other things. Well, New Orleans has its own subculture, and, and in most cases, when a city has its own subculture, it's hard for other things to get in. It's just like the cuisine here. It's like the food cuisine. Uh, most of the restaurants in New Orleans uh, serves some kind of Creole or Cajun cuisine. It's modified in this way or that mm. way. Um, but it doesn't matter what, even even when you go to some of the Japanese restaurants. <laughs> it's amazing. Creole Japanese? Yeah, it's amazing. They, obviously, they don't say that, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's probably a little more spicy than say, some of the Japanese restaurants that you might find in Houston or, or even Los Angeles. Mm. Um, and... Um, it's it's hard for other it's hard for other ethnic restaurants to get in here. I mean, there are a few Vietnam, Vietnamese places, a few Thai, Chinese, mm. that kind of thing. Same thing is is happening with music. Uh, you get well, you get a lot of straight ahead jazz in because there are a lot of straight ahead jazz musicians in New Orleans, uh, but there are not that many straight ahead jazz outlets mm. for playing that music here. And unfortunately, uh, New Orleans misses, uh, well, a lot of the shows, say, f uh, put on by straight-ahead musicians don't come into New Orleans, except during the time of, say, the Jazz Festival. And occasionally the House of Blues may bring somebody in. But by and large, and mostly you get uh, street music uh, with the New Orleans influence, uh, New Orleans funk um, and blues with New Orleans influence. Mm. It's a pretty good diet, though. Oh, uh, look, <laughs> you know, I'm not complaining. Yeah. And, of course, I, I have the good fortune of living in cities that 
uh, where jazz flourished. So I may not need it as much as some of the other people here might. Uh, I mean, plus I can practice. <laughs> Great. Do one more for us, if oh, you would. Oh, certainly. Uh, <clears throat> I want to do one from the album. And uh, maybe I'll sing one. Cool. Okay. This piece is entitled uh, Got My Eyes on You. It's the first cut on the record.
the late Henry Butler. And now... News of Dominion. More than 26,000 of the world's species are now threatened, according to the latest Red List assessment of the natural world. This adds to fears the planet is entering a sixth wave of extinctions. Well, the first five weren't that bad, were they? New research, particularly in Australia, has widened the scope of the annual inventory, which is compiled by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, revealing the growing range of risks to flora and her very best friend, fauna. Nineteen of the species previously on the list have moved to a higher level of concern. They include the precious stream toad, which is being decimated by tourist pollution in Malaysia. Those damn tourists. Two types of Japanese earthworm that are threatened by habitat loss, agrochemicals, and radioactive fallout from Fook, and the Bartle Frere cool skink. Let's all do the cool skink before he goes away. He's a slinky Australian reptile whose habitat has shrunk as a result of global warming to a 200-meter band at the peak of the tallest mountain in the state of Queensland. The threats are not limited to uh, faraway creatures with exotic names. Scientists have warned the loss of biodiversity is more of a threat than climate change because it erodes the Earth's capacity to provide a few things like clean air, fresh water, food, and a stable weather system. We're moving into a period where extinctions are taking place, place at a much higher pace than the natural background rate. We're endangering the life support systems of our planet and putting the future of our own species in jeopardy, says the head of the Red List unit in Cambridge. Cambridge? I know it well. This is our window of opportunity to act, he says, Craig Hilton Taylor. We have the knowledge and tools on what needs to be done, but now need everyone, governments, private sector, and civil society to escalate actions to prevent the decline and loss of species. Unquote. Or else. Six species have been declared extinct since last year, taking the total to 872. Another 1,700 species are listed as critically endangered, possibly extinct. The, uh, in the Caribbean, the tiny population of Jamaican Hutia, a rodent, has been fragmented by expanding settlements. This makes it harder for the small mammal to mate. Know the feeling, babe. New studies are constantly widening the range of the red list. A focus of this year's report was Australian reptiles, 7% of which are threatened with extinction. On a more positive note, the Quito stubfoot toad was among four amphibian species rediscovered in South America after fears they had gone extinct. Overall, however, frogs and toads have shown some of the sharpest declines in uh, existence, along with corals and orchids. Now, see, that just proves that we'll even let species that we love go extinct. Orchids. And, also on the subject of dominion, while we're at it, ladies and gentlemen, for your continued listening pleasure, a wild banana that may hold the key to protecting the world's edible banana crop has been put on the extinction list. It's found only in Madagascar, where there are just five mature trees of that banana thing, species left in the wild. Scientists say the plant needs to be conserved as it may hold the secret to keeping bananas safe for the future. This is reports from the BBC. Most, I, we, I think this was mentioned on this program a few years back, this odd note that almost all the bananas that we eat these days are one type, the Cavendish. Should, I, should you have a Cavendish for uh, your snacks? Huh? It's vulnerable to a plant pest, however. 
The race is on to develop new banana varieties that are both tasty to eat and resilient enough to survive attack from Panama disease. You've heard of the canal, now try the disease. The Madagascar banana has evolved in isolation because it's an island, hence the name, and may have special properties. Beachfront, I hope. Uh, a senior conservation assessor at the Bo- Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew said the species could have built-in tolerance to drought or disease. We don't know until we actually do research on the banana itself. We can't do the research, he says, until it's saved. Save the banana, ladies and gentlemen. Just one of the tasks facing us as we move forward into this bright thing called the future. Now, who, who, whom can you trust if you can't trust Facebook? Facebook disclosed um, in the last few days that it gave dozens of companies special access to user data. Uh, it's detailing for the first time a spate of deals, according to MarketWatch, that contrasted with the social network's previous public statement statements, including those to Congress, that it restricted personal information to outsiders in 2015. Cut them off, basically. Cut them off at the data. The deals with app developers, device, and software makers described in a 747-page document released, one, one for every Boeing, uh, the document that released to Congress late last week, represent Facebook's most granular explanation of exemptions that previously had been revealed by news organizations. The disclosure comes as lawmakers have demanded accountability at Facebook <laughs> yeah, for allowing companies access to data on its billions of users without their knowledge and question how far the universe of companies that share in Facebook's data slurp extends. Facebook said in the disclosure the special deals were required to give app developers time to become compliant with changes in its policies and to enable device and software makers to create versions of the social network for their products. The company disclosed it is still sharing information of users' friends, name, gender, birth date, current city or hometown, photos, and page likes with 61 app developers, and this nearly six months after it said that it stopped access to this data way back in 2015. They'll be apologizing for that soon. But meanwhile... From now on, Facebook will do more to keep you safe and protect your privacy. Meanwhile, they'll just be buying commercials that say that. And now... Maybe it's because of the... uh, Oh. Having a little problem with the... uh, Oh, I know. I, I know what's happening here. I'm getting all confused. Now, the apologies of the week. It's hot in London. What do you want from me? You want a listenable radio program, I think. Last month, Zion's Joy, a vocal ensemble from Indianapolis, posted a video to its Facebook page for a new song, What Would Heaven Look Like? We want to touch people's hearts and let people know that we can do better than the world is doing right now, said the group's founder. founder. After a week, they decided to promote the video by paying Facebook for a boost. That's when Facebook's algorithm flagged what would heaven look like as political content and blocked the video altogether. In a statement, a Facebook spokeswoman said that its political ad policy is new, broad, and exists to prevent election interference, so we're asking people with content that falls under those rules to simply get authorized. Separately, the statement continued, we made an error by deleting the original post. As soon as we identified what happened, we restored the post. Since it does not violate our community standards, we have apologized to Zion's joy. Milwaukee Bucks center Ton Maker, a South Sudanese, 
gentleman issued an apology after he was involved in a massive brawl between Australia and the Philippines during the uh, World Cup qualifying basketball championships. I'm deeply disappointed in the actions displayed during yesterday's game, Maker wrote on Instagram. Being from a war-torn country, i.e. South Sudan, basketball for me has always been a means to bring people together. I feel a great responsibility as an NBA player to carry myself in a way that promotes peace and unity. He's a center for the Australian national team. He came flying into the brawl and was ejected for his actions. YouTube took to Twitter. Hey, we're all in this together to apologize for how its its new ad sharing policies unfairly penalized its LGBTQ creators. And after its ad platform ran homophobic advertisements before some of the videos made by the creators. In a series of tweets, YouTube said it had let the LGBTQ community down through inappropriate ads and their monetization policy. We're sorry, and we want to do better, says YouTube. I think we all want you to do better, YouTube. I speak for myself and not my community. Facebook's contract-cleansing bots have flagged the United States Declaration of Independence as hate speech. The Liberty County Vindicator, a newspaper serving Liberty, Texas, posted small bites from the declaration on its Facebook page in the run-up to the 4th of July to make it a little easier to digest. (laughs) Yeah, that Declaration of Independence, that gives me heartburn. But the paper detailed the first nine parts posted as scheduled at Part 10, did not appear. Instead, the Vindicator received a notice from Facebook saying the post goes against our standards on hate speech because it included the phrase... Uh, where is the phrase? Oh, yeah. Merciless Indian savages. <laughs> the Vindicator complained about the removal. Also agreed that some of the offending paragraphs could be construed as hateful. Facebook has apologized. I guess you're getting into the habit. A white man who called North Carolina police on a black woman who was using a private community pool with her child no longer has a job because of the incident, his company said. Global packaging firm Sunoco Products said in a statement, although the 4th of July incident involving Adam Bloom occurred outside of work, the company does not condone discrimination of any kind. He resigned as the pool chair and a board member from the Homeowners Association of a Community in Winston-Salem, and the association apologized in the statement, said Bloom escalated a situation in a way that does not reflect the inclusive values Glenridge seeks to uphold as a community. And then Bloom repeatedly apologized in an interview with NBC. He said he regrets how he handled the encounter with the woman saying he could have been more empathetic to how she may have felt. She did, in fact, have a uh, an ID card, a pool access card, which indeed did provide her proper access to the swimming pool. That was found out when the police department responded to the call. And an Australian sunglasses company has removed part of an advertising campaign filmed at a death camp in Croatia after a series of complaints. Imagine that. The uh, company, Valley Eyewear, put up a series of videos taken on a trip to Croatia and Bulgaria using footage of models in sunglasses at communist-era memorials. But some of the pictures were from Jasanovac, a World War II death camp run by Croatia's Nazi puppet regime. Nazi puppets, ladies and gentlemen. You do want to stay away from them. The firm apologized, saying its aim was to show respect for the architecture. 
They'd visited the Jasanovac Memorial for half an hour. When it was closed, we didn't want to offend anybody. We are a respectful brand. I apologize to anyone who's offended, said a spokesperson. Eyewear director, Michael Crowley, told the BBC. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, quickly, news of the warm, won't you? Rising sea levels will flood coastal regions and cost at least $14 trillion per year worldwide by 2100 unless drastic measures curb climate change, according to a study released this week. A study published in Environmental Research Letters examined what could happen if critical climate goals are not met worldwide. Failure to meet these goals will result in dire economic consequences. Economic consequences? Oh, now they're talking real money, according to the authors of the study led by the UK National Oceanographic Centre. Developing nations have, and low coastline areas would see extreme level sea level changes, flooding that could impact more than 600 million people living in areas less than 32 feet above sea level, a study found. If global partners can keep global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees centigrade by 2100, sea levels will rise by 1.7 feet on average, but missing that target could mean a rise of 2.8 to 5.9 feet. Upper middle income countries such as China would see the largest increase in flood costs, Higher income countries would suffer the least because of existing coastal protections and infrastructure. So we get back at China after all. Tropical forests are important to all of us on the planet as well as being home for rare and fascinating biodiversity. Tropical forests lock up enormous amounts of carbon. Tropical forests are also home to many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people whose lives can be affected by international conservation policies. Multinational donors such as the World Bank have made clear commitments that those negatively impacted by their projects should be compensated, but uh, the compensation doesn't seem to be enough, according to a report in Eureka Alert this week. And future global warming may eventually be twice as warm as projected by climate models, those darn models, under business-as-usual scenarios, and even if the world beats the two-degree target, sea levels may rise six meters or more, according to findings published last week in Nature Geo. Science and Baltic sea waters have reached a 1,500-year low due to hu- uh, oxygen levels in the Baltic Sea. That is due to human activity. So we're spreading dead zones, ladies and gentlemen, wherever we go. News of the warm. It's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. I do a piece uh, that I wrote celebrating James Booker as a New Orleans pianist, and it's entitled "Dr. James." That's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week. 
whenever you want it on the audio device of your choice. And it'd be just like having a little more Henry Butler around if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago and Exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead, to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans, to Adrian Bodenham here at Global Radio in London. Thanks as also to John Fishback at the Long Gone Piety Studios in New Orleans, Louisiana. To George Ingmeyer, our sister public radio station in New Orleans, WWOZ. To the engineering crew at South by Southwest way back when. And to SMV in Santa Monica, California for their help in putting together today's broadcast. The email address for this program, the playlist of the music heard here on, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts just for the beach, all at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. Next week, this program will be, I think, we'll be back in New Orleans. But uh, right now, from the entirely tropical climes of London, England, where they close the streets just to make the traffic flow a little bit smoother. So long, everybody. See you next week.